morning, Journey. Good to see you all. My name's Chris. Really glad you're here. Glad we get to be together today. Uh, We are in the second week of a series that we're calling Upside Down. And in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at what is called the Sermon on the Mount, which is this sermon that Jesus preaches in Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And what he's doing in this sermon is not so much offering us advice on how to behave. In fact, what he's doing is is helping us to discover the living God and the loving and then soon dying Jesus. And then we learn to reflect that love ourselves into the world. That is the ethos of this sermon. And so if we'll follow Jesus into this way of living, it will in fact flip everything upside down. Except there's all kinds of crazy things that he actually asks us to do and tells us to be. And so it's gonna take us a long time to to walk through the whole of this teaching from Jesus. Today, we're just in the the second week of making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And And it's called the Sermon on the Mount, but not called that by Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. He, well, he didn't call it anything. He probably just called it a conversation actually, and we've called it a Sermon on the Mount, but I wanna, I wanna help us set the stage for what it is that Jesus is doing and why he's doing it. And so as we make that movement, I'm just going to focus in a little bit today on Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And I'm gonna take that as our jumping off point. So I'm gonna read those words from Jesus for us. Then I'm gonna pray and then we'll trust the guiding and teaching of the Holy Spirit uh, to help bring the hold of this text to life. That sound good? Thumbs up, maybe? Okay, all right, good. Looked like everybody, that's great. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Speaking to his disciples gathered around, he says this, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just come together today as your family, your children. And I pray that we would not take for granted today the gift it is to gather together in this space. God, we know that you are present and you are in our midst. You are here with us. You are already speaking to us, moving in us, forming us into the likeness of your son. Jesus, continue to do that work today, God. I pray that we would open up our hearts and our lives and our minds to receive whatever it is you have for us to speak to us as individuals for sure, but also speak to us as a corporate community so that we might live as this upside down kingdom in this world, God. Give us the courage and the strength to do that. I pray that you would give me your words this morning, God. I pray that I wouldn't say anything that's not for you or from you, that we would make much of you and we would know that we are loved by you. We do all of this for your glory. We pray these things in your son's name, amen. 
So in preparing for this Sunday's sermon, I took a little bit of a different approach uh, or a more intentional version of an approach I typically use. How about that? Because you'll see why in a second I make that caveat. What I was doing is I just sat down with the, with the Lord, with a blank slate in front of me, and, and I prayed this prayer. I said, Jesus, if you were to speak to Journey Church today, what would you want to say if you were here? I mean, I think on some level, right, I give the caveat because I should always be asking that. And I, and I would think that we're all hopeful that, that God would always be speaking what he wants to say to us. But I, I did it with a different kind of intentionality because I prayed that prayer and then I just sat there and I waited. I waited. Then I left because it was taking too long and I came back and asked it again. And then I felt like I heard God speak to me, which is always an interesting thing to say if you're the preacher because two things happen. One, we just talk flippantly sometimes about how God speaks to us, right? And so you're probably like, well, yeah, that guy's, he's preaching. He must be pretty holy. I bet it was like a lightning bolt that that came to him. No, it's just like a feeling in my spirit, right? Like that you knew that it was God speaking, And then the other caveat I give, right, by saying all of this is that I don't intend for it to feel like, look, here's the trump card I heard from God. You guys got to receive what I'm about to say. That's not necessarily what I mean either. I'm just trying to tell you the truth about the process that I went through to get to this thing that I believed that Jesus said to me about what he wants all of us who are gathered here on this day to hear. And here's what I heard him saying to me. Tell them who they are. Tell them who they are. And this is fitting because one, I'm always wanting to live more fully into the identity that Jesus has given me. That's true of me. And so two, I'm guessing that's also true of most of us here today. We're saying, yes, I want to live more fully into the identity that Jesus has given me. And then it's fitting Three, because Jesus is actually doing that very thing in our portion of scripture today. That's how I was able to discern that it was in fact God speaking to me because it's the type of thing that God would say. God wants us all to know who we are. So before I get to that part, let me set the stage for us because every time we make this movement through the Sermon on the Mount over the weeks to come, it's important to hold that specific day's teaching in the context of the entirety of the whole Sermon on the Mount. It was spoken all at once. It was meant to be heard as a whole and we'll just draw out pieces along the way, but pieces that fit in the the big full teaching that Jesus offers So here's what Jesus is doing. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus went up on a mountain. I'd have called it the Sermon on the Mountain, but Mount works too, right? So Jesus climbs up on this mountain and he sits down as the rabbis of that time would do. That's how they taught. They would climb up on the mountain. In this context, they would sit down and then the disciples would gather at the feet of Jesus to learn. That's how one learned from their teacher, from their rabbi, from the one they were following. They sat at his feet. But in this particular case of the Sermon on the Mount, there's also another group of people present and they're known as the crowd. 
So we've got Jesus climbing up on a mountain, sitting down teaching, his disciples gathered at his feet. Those who have surrendered everything to follow him are listening in intently about where they're going, what they're doing, and who they are. And then there's this crowd closing in, gathering around. But where does the crowd come from? How did they show up here? Right, because if they're listening in and the disciples are listening in, it's probably important to know where it is that these crowds of people came from. Well, if you go backwards a little bit into the end of chapter four, you find that the crowd started following Jesus around because he was doing a couple things. He was healing everybody. And he was healing the people that no one else had ever healed or touched. And he was announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the more and more he went around from place to place doing this early on in his ministry and his life, right? He's only got a few followers. He's just showing them the way, like this is what this upside down kingdom's about. We're gonna heal all these people and tell them to come and follow me. And so as he moves from place to place, crowds continue to gather around. Who is this man? I want to be healed. I want to receive a touch. I want to be uh, uh, confirmed in who I am. Like they're, they're drawing near because they're interested in what it means to follow this teacher, this rabbi. Unlike the disciples, they have not surrendered everything to follow him. They're still in like this, what does this look like phase? Because if you go back in chapter four, just before the crowd's gathering around, it's when Jesus calls the disciples to follow him. And what do they do? They drop everything they've ever owned and ever known to follow Jesus. So there's something distinctly different about the disciples gathered at Jesus's feet and the crowd that's coming in, but all of them long to know more of what it means to follow this Jesus. And the reality is that when Jesus sits down to begin teaching, he knows that these disciples at his feet and the crowd closing in belong together. He knows and desires for all of them to follow him and in fact become a new family. He knows they all need each other. So hold that in view as we listen to the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives. Because at it's this point that we find today where Jesus is teaching through the sermon, Jesus hasn't told a single soul what to do in this teaching. But he climbed up on the mountain, sat down, and the first thing he did is he told us all about God, as in these are the kinds of people that God blesses. These are the kind of people that will flourish because God is blessing them. And as they hear this list of who God's going to bless, they're like, well, that's not who we anticipated would be blessed in this kingdom, right? It's the peacemakers, the poor, those who mourn, those who are persecuted, and they're all like, huh? They're gonna be blessed. So something's already shifting for them as God is, or Jesus is telling them about a God who's going to bless and cause those to flourish who they had not anticipated would be blessed and flourishing. And from there, where we are today, he's gonna tell them who they are. And so as we listen today, you get to insert yourself into the Sermon on the Mount wherever you think you need to be. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you have surrendered it all, given everything away to come and follow this new king, well then gather at the feet of Jesus. If you're a part of the crowd and you're interested in more of what this might mean to follow this Jesus, well then put yourself there and listen to it 
through those ears. There's neither right nor wrong in that regard as we gather here today, but know this, the desire for Jesus is that we would all come and give up everything to follow him and we would be united to one another. That's what he longs for as he gives this sermon. So here we have this community landscape found and Jesus is upside down sermonizing and it creates a tension. And it creates more of a tension actually for all of us here today because often when we hear the words of Jesus, we hear them as individuals. When we read, you are the salt of the earth, we think of that as I am the salt of the earth, which is not untrue. But Jesus intends for this to be about us, about we. It's a plural form of you. It's not just about you. And it's never just about you when Jesus is talking. It's always more than that. It's always more than that. So the upside down reality is that Jesus knows the disciples and the crowd belong together. So what about this business of Jesus telling us who we are? Is Jesus rattled off an upside down list of those who are blessed by God, those who God will help flourish? It's likely that as they're listening, whether they're the disciples or the crowd, they're listening, anticipating that this teacher might tell them then who they are. They want to be blessed or they are being blessed. Something's happening and they want to know who they are. So here's what Jesus tells them after he rattles off that list. In Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Now, hear this again in the context of sitting at the feet of Jesus. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp, then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. What incredible words those would have been to hear as you're sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so a couple things to note. Scott McKnight clarifies by saying what's implicit in verses 13 through 16 and buried inside of the two words, you are, right? You are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. Is that Jesus assumes his disciples will be salt and light because they are his followers, because they are the blessed ones, the obedient ones as he lays out. Right? They are not salt or light automatically, but only to the degree that they are followers of Jesus. Jesus does this weird thing where he's always challenging us to make a decision about where our allegiance lies. And some in the context of this particular Sermon on the Mount have already said, we align with you, Jesus. And he says, well then, of course you are salt and light because you can only be salt and light if you're followers of Jesus. But what's so interesting that Jesus chooses to tell these people that they are salt and light. What's different is that typically people were not the bearers of salt and light in the world. 
In that context, especially in the Jewish context, the light shone from the temple or from God and he's saying that's actually present in you who are my followers. You have the same responsibility now, but also the same identity that I have, which is unlike anybody's teaching at that time. Since their identity is in Jesus, it's emphasized that you are salt and light, not go be salt and light. Right? Don't go try and be salty, which you actually don't actually, as we know that word, right? Don't go be salt and light. You are salt and light. Jesus knows that what we do will flow out of who we are. When he says, this is who you are to your core, salt of the earth people, light of the world people, he goes, I know now that you can't help but be salt and light in the world. You don't have to try to be, you have to receive your identity so you know who to be. It's like this distinction between, right? Like you're not, you're not like trying to earn your salt and light, but now it will require some effort to be it because you know who you are. So all of that sounds great up to this point, at least in my view. And I go, okay, but what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Right, I've only like said be salt a gazillion times now. And we're like, but what does that mean to be the salt of the earth? Salt can preserve life. Salt brings forth flavor. To be the salt of the earth is to inject a reviving regenerative force into that which is dying. That's what salt does. Or as ever heard Arnold says, the injustice of the world, sin itself is the disease of the world's soul that leads to death. Our mission on behalf of the kingdom is to be the salt of the earth, to stem injustice, prevent its decay, and hinder its death. Inject life, something that's reviving and regenerative, into a world that's dying. And see, the very task of being salt and light to be a shining city on a hill is in fact just to serve all. You have an identity, yes, in being salt and light, but it's for the service of all, which is fitting because Jesus himself said he came, why? Not to lord it over people, but to be a servant of all. To his core, Jesus himself is salt and light. And he says, go and be my people. Yet, Jesus says something interesting after he says, you are the salt of the earth. He asks a couple rhetorical questions that cause us to rethink what it means to be the salt of the earth. Now, the thing is, if you are a follower of Jesus, you don't stop being salt because that's who you are, that is your identity, you are salt. But Jesus says you can lose your saltiness. How do you lose your saltiness? How do you become road dust, as John Stott calls it, trampled on the ground, Jesus says. When we align ourselves with that which takes life, demonizes, accuses, and refuses to preserve the dignity of all who bear the image of God, 
we have lost our saltiness. When we align ourselves with that which takes life, demonizes, accuses, and refuses to preserve the dignity of all who bear the image of God. We have lost our saltiness. That is why Jesus is always pressing us on where our allegiance lies. And then he says we're the the light of the world, right? And discerning what it means to be the light of the world is a bit easier for us We're just a little more familiar with light because it's like all around we can, in fact, see one another right now because there's light. Like if if I was Bob, I would have had some sort of light prop, right? And I'd shine it in places and I'd do all kinds of stuff like that. But instead I didn't bring a prop, I just told you to look up. Right, because we're familiar with how light works. How it breaks into the darkness and separates out the light. Right, darkness in and of itself is the absence of light. And so light is in the business of breaking in, of of flooding that which is dark. There's life behind light. Nothing can be hidden when light shines on it. Unless we put a lid on the light. We are still light It's like the old refrigerator game I played when I was a kid, right? The refrigerator has a light on inside and I would try and like close the door and find out when the light turns off, right? Like you put light under a basket, it's still light. Except that when we put light under a basket, when we put a lid on the light, what's happened is we have chosen to shrink into invisibility to remain stagnant and ultimately to be useless. Because when this is the case, when the light is invisible and hidden, we are unable now to let our good deeds shine. And if we hide under the lid or the basket or whatever covers the light, well, then we miss the opportunity for what this whole thing is about is so that everyone would praise our heavenly father, right? That all of this, everything we salt and everything we light would be about pointing to our heavenly father. We cannot be invisible followers of Jesus. We cannot be an invisible church family. We have to pull the lid off the light and let the light shine. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it even more bluntly. He says this, now they have to be what they are or they are not following Jesus. Like followers of Jesus, salt the earth and light the world Or as Bonhoeffer says, they're not following Jesus. That's like kind of hard. So you're like, okay, well, where is the good news in this? If we who are disciples of Jesus are to be salt and light, then how is this good news? Here's how it's good news. Jesus, who in the gospel of John refers to himself as what? The light of of the world. Jesus himself defines himself 
as the light of the world. And who does he say his followers are? The light of the world. Now just think about that for a second. Because my guess is often when we show up at the feet of Jesus, we don't anticipate that we are going to be on this like equal playing field with Jesus. That we won't be known by the same things that he is. We're like, if only we could get this thing figured out. And he's like, no, I actually see something in you that you could never see in yourself. He says, you are the light of the world. The very savior who calls himself the light of the world transfers his own light and salt into each one of us who's his followers so we can be him on this earth. We can't be who we are without Jesus. But I love that he thinks so much more of us than we actually think of ourselves. And so hold that in view too, right? These disciples, they've already given up everything and they're like, whoa, and we're soul and light? And then you've got the crowd gathered around and they're like, hold on, this teacher here thinks that of those people and he could think that of me then too, right? Essentially by speaking it to these very people in front of him, those listening in hear the reality of how Jesus views all of humanity. He sees something in them that they don't see in themselves. So Jesus grants his followers his very self. And so for those listening to the Sermon on the Mount in that present moment, what a gift it is to receive that identity. And now for us, as we look backwards on the story, we see that Jesus embodies this generous love, this way in which he sees humanity by dying on a cross. The light of the world hanging from a cross. Talk about an upside down kingdom. Even nailed to a cross, the light of the world shines out and says this to our core people, is who we are. This is what it means to be the light of the world, to sacrifice all of who we are for all of humanity. And so we can receive this identity as a disciple of Jesus. Or maybe we're in the crowd and we can choose to turn to Jesus for the first time because as he preaches this sermon, it's just one continual invitation to enter into the ways of the kingdom, to choose him as king, as Lord. Because again, Jesus himself knows that we all belong together in the upside down family of the kingdom of God. So as we finish this morning, I just want God to be able to have the last word for you and your life. And so we'll just take a few moments to be still before the Lord. And there might be a handful of things that you might bring before him. Maybe, maybe you're in danger of losing your saltiness. Ask how you might salt the earth. Maybe you have never received the truth that the light of the world calls you the light of the world. Let that fill you. Maybe you are a member of the crowd on the outside of this looking in and you know it's time to come and surrender everything and enter in to being a part of the kingdom family. Or maybe you've got questions, questions for a God. He's not afraid of your questions. So ask him your questions now or you can even just sit with him in stillness and know that he is with you. So let's take a few moments with him and then I'll close us and lead us into communion.
God, as we just rest here still before you, reflecting on who you are or the things you're saying to us or what might come next. Just want to thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And I pray that for a moment, we would behold your son, Jesus, in our mind's eye on that cross. And help us as we see him there to see the light of the world shining out. Help us to receive the truth of who we are as we look at the image of your son on the cross. We thank you that your son Jesus walked this earth and showed us how to live as those who preserve life, flavor the world, shine bright like a city on a hill. Would that be the type of people that we are? Would we live into that not for our own selves, but so that others might see you, know you, and to have their lives transformed by the Jesus who shines from the cross as the light of the world. We thank you that Jesus did not stay dead, that you rose him from the dead by the power of your spirit. And that same spirit lives in us so that we now can go and be the people you call us to be, people who salt the earth and light the world. We love you, Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.